The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello, my friends, it's Sarah, and I'm back for another episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show for your delight and delectation. Well, when this goes live, we will be definitely in the run-up to Christmas. So the first thing I want to say is a very, very Merry Christmas to you all. I hope you have a wonderful, festive season. Well, it's been another year of adventures on the road, and I hope you have enjoyed them all. Um, In fact, it would be lovely to hear from you about what's been your favourite episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show, and if you have any ideas of where you'd like me to go and what you'd like me to see on the road in 2024, then why not drop me a line at sarah at thetudortravelguide.com. I always love to hear from listeners. Okay, well, with that, actually, I'd love to thank the members of my membership, The Ultimate Guide to Exploring Tudor England, for their ongoing support, partly of this podcast. It helps keep the show on the road, and I am deeply grateful for your ongoing enthusiasm and support for all that I do here at The Tudor Travel Guide. And if you're not yet a member, but would like to take advantage of the full episodes of the podcast, and of course, a ton of other written content on the blog, a library of growing resources, detailed write-ups of Tudor places, Tudor progresses, a growing library of Tudor tombs. And if you're interested in exploring the UK in person, lots of itineraries and interactive maps and suggestions for top tips of where to go and what to do. And then of course, we've got our community board, which is where we get together to share all our current thoughts, ideas and questions. And maybe if you're looking to come to the UK, you might even find your own travel buddy. Well, if you are interested, I mention it now because for the first time, you are able to gift uh, the membership to a loved one. So if you are interested in being a member and you have a loved one, has yet to buy you a Chrissy present, you might want to point them in the direction of the membership. At checkout, there is now a little option where you tick for give as gift. And this means that you can buy a membership, whether it's a monthly membership or an annual membership for your loved one. And that subscription actually not only gives Uh, your loved one the gift of the membership, but actually you're also a member for the period of time for which your subscription goes live. Okay, well, if you're interested, there is a link uh, to the uh, information page about what is included in the membership associated with this podcast. 
Okay, right. Well, let's get on with where we are going today because it is a bumper episode and in a in something that is becoming a tradition for the Tudor Travel Guide, I am making this episode the Christmas episode in December free to all. And in fact, we're going to not just one place, but two locations. Both of them are return visits and both of them involve searching for something that's lost. <laughs> so what do I mean? Well, in our first uh, recording, I head back to Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire to meet up with one of the members of Dig Ventures. Now, Dig Ventures have been on site at Sudley, um, both pre and post COVID for a series of five years looking for a lost Tudor garden. Well, the question is, did they find it? Well, I couldn't resist returning to Sudley and meeting up with our guide for today uh, to find out what exactly the team have uncovered over their five years of digging. Then I whiz across the country to our second location, which is Collyweston, the little village of Collyweston in Northamptonshire. Now, some of you may remember that I visited Collyweston a few years ago, 2018, 2019, again, pre-COVID, as the Historical Society in Collyweston had just begun a dig to try and find the exact location of the lost Tudor Palace. Of course, Collyweston was perhaps most famously owned by Margaret Beaufort, that doyen of the Tudor age, who essentially ruled the area of the Midlands on behalf of her son. Now, the palace has been known about for many, many years and its rough location also known, but we have never known the exact size, extent or layout of the buildings. And the Historical Society undertook a project a few years back to try and identify and answer exactly those questions. And there has been a breakthrough, my friends. And Chris Close, who's president of the organisation, dropped me an email and said, Sarah, you might want to come up to Collie Weston. We're going to be doing an event because something very special has happened. <laughs> well, as you can imagine, I couldn't resist that. And so a few weekends ago, I headed up to Collie Weston to find out just what all the fuss was about. Now, in both instances, of course, there are show notes associated with this podcast, uh, including images taken from on location. And so you will need to look uh, for the link in the description associated with this podcast if you want to have a look at those show notes and look at some of the images as I chat to our experts on today's show. Okay, well, I think that's well enough for me. It is time to go time travelling, my friend. So buckle up. Let's head on over to beautiful Gloucestershire and meet up with our first expert. This time we are going to be meeting with Ginny Cole from Dick Ventures. Hello, my time traveling friends. Yes, it's Sarah here for another episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. And I am yet again on location. In fact, returning to a location that I have visited on a couple of occasions for the podcast, the beautiful Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire, of course, once home to Catherine Parr. 
Now, on this occasion, I am returning to pick up on a story that I was following as part of the Tudor History and Travel Show. Gosh, a good few years ago, pre-COVID, I think, in fact. Um, I'm here because Dig Ventures are returning for their fifth and final year. Um, excavating, I think, and I'm going to hear all about this in a moment, a Tudor garden here at Sudley. And as I say, I came along a few years ago, maybe at the beginning of the dig, to find out what was going on, but I couldn't resist the temptation to return and find out what Dig Ventures have found. And to unravel the story for us today, we have Ginny, Ginny Cole. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. Welcome back to say. Oh, thank you so much for inviting us and having us back today. Um, so before we get into what the project's all about and what you've been finding, perhaps you could just introduce yourself to the listeners. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So uh, I'm Ginny and I'm a community archaeologist with Dig Ventures. Um, so my main responsibilities with Dig Ventures is sort of looking after our crowd funders who come to site. And also I do a lot of our events. Uh, so I get to talk to the public about archaeology a lot, which I love because I just love to talk about archaeology. <laughs> Fantastic. And tell us, for those people who don't know so much about Dig Ventures, perhaps you could tell us what you're all about. Yes, yeah, so uh, we're a community archaeology company uh, and we mainly have a crowdfunding model. Um, so we run a series of digs across the UK and sometimes a little further afield as well, um, where people can come and take part and join us on site to investigate all manner of different uh, different places, including Sudley here and many others too. Yes, I've seen you all literally all over the place. Yeah, so. we get around. <laughs> <laughs> and, and while we're talking about that, for people who want to know more about Dig Ventures, and maybe projects that are coming up where would they go to find out information about you? So the best place is probably our website uh, digventures.com um, that's where we share everything that's coming up everything we've got going on and we also have the option to take part in a number of online courses and to be a subscriber so there's plenty for anyone regardless of where they are in the world and also of course we have social media as well where you can follow us and see all of our latest dig updates too. That's fantastic so I guess you're on Instagram and Facebook. Yes and Twitter as well. Um, Twitter as well excellent so so great there's loads of places where people can go and find out more about you and I would say listeners you may hear people chatting in the background you may hear clinking yes we actually are on location the action is happening around us I hope that adds to your ambiance and the sense of being here at Sudley okay now what was this project all about, Ginny? Why did you come here and what were you looking for? So we were initially invited um, by the staff of Sudley Castle to come and have a look at what they think might be this, this huge Tudor garden that's underneath Hopfield where we're standing now. Um, so there is a little bit of a garden still in Sudley now. I say a little bit to be fair, it's very <laughs> massive and beautiful. Yes. They've done a fantastic job. But this is some of the Victorian sort of reconstructions based on what they could see under the earth. Um, but out here in Hopfield, we've got this massive expanse, which was once uh, this huge Tudor garden uh, that played host to some celebrities of uh, English history, which I'm sure you'll be very interested in. Lots of Tudors. I do. Can you tell us about a little bit about what we know of the 
historic gardens from the records before we get on to what you've actually what you're looking for when you actually found here yeah so i believe there are a few mentions of the gardens throughout different records um, unfortunately for Sudley castle um, i think due to the slighting that happened after the civil war a lot of their records are lost but we do know that there was a garden here um, and there are a few references to it being sort of done up and changed over the years um, and we know as well that i believe when the uh, soldiers from parliament came we know that they marched through here so we know that there's a lot going on in these grounds um, and of course uh, probably the most famous and most interesting for your viewers will be the fact that Elizabeth I came to these gardens for a party uh, to celebrate that four-year anniversary of her victory over the Spanish Armada which I imagine probably would have been very exciting if it hadn't rained. Oh but is it raining? <laughs> yeah unfortunately um, for the third Lord Chandos who lived here at the time he spent all this money he completely bankrupt himself to throw this huge party and not unlike last week it absolutely chucked it down so oh, for him <laughs> gosh that's just the thing about living in england isn't it you it can't is. plan any outdoor you event can't. and nothing has changed over 500 no. years in <laughs> yes of course that was the most spectacular uh spectacular party here so you so you came here, what were you hoping to find then exactly? Um, so I think initially we were hoping to find perhaps evidence of Elizabeth I's visit, um, but also just evidence of the garden in general. Mm -hmm. And over the years, our sort of research targets and things have changed. We've opened many different trenches across different areas of the site, targeting different things that might be of interest. Um, and over the years, we have uncovered some interesting garden features and things and some quite unique stories about the garden. Um, probably my favourite would be in, I think it was 2021, we opened a trench just to further over to the end of the garden that way. Um, and we uncovered a lovely sort of boundary wall, a dry stone standing wall. But on top of that, we had all this rubble, this stone that had been sort of put on there to re-landscape it, to extend beyond that original wall and turn it into sort of a walkway or a path feature. Um, and that stone was really interesting in itself because we identified that as being stone from Winchcombe Abbey. So for a bit of context, Winchcombe Abbey was in the village uh, next to Sudley Castle. And of course, as with many sites like that, it was destroyed during the dissolution of the monasteries. Um, so the fact that we found this stone from Winchcombe Abbey was really exciting. It's not the only stone that's been found here. But what's interesting is that we noticed there's very little wear, very little weathering on there. So it seems like perhaps Thomas Seymour might be our culprit for bringing this stone to sight. Right. Uh, we know he was heavily involved in the destruction of the monastery and there are some sort of local legends that he took cartloads of stone away. Um, and this seems to be the case. It seems to be the stone has been taken very soon after its destruction, which is why it's not very weathered. And it's been used to remodel that garden. So we think perhaps this is evidence, archaeological evidence that lines up with our historical records, which show that Thomas Seymour actually spent a lot of money refurbishing the castle in advance of Catherine Parr moving here to be uh, his wife. So yes, we have this beautiful wedding gift, this very romantic story just under our feet. Can you imagine? I know. She's arriving here and he's done all of this for her. How, how amazing. Maybe we should just describe, actually, I know for the, it, it's kind of obvious what we can see here, yes. but maybe for the listeners we can just describe what we currently see in yes. front of us and and then I'd also like to know a little bit about what do we know of Tudor Gardens in general before we talk about it perhaps in more detail about what you've found here so, so we've got like we're in a field really aren't we With the, yes 
So Cedar Castle is behind us. It is, yeah. So we're sort of divided from the garden by the ha-ha behind us here. So we're sort of split off. And it, we're in what looks like a huge pasture field here with full of different trees and things. And the ground in front of us is very sort of lumpy and bumpy. You can see that there's things happening below the earth. Um, but before we came, we weren't entirely sure what those were. Um, so it stretches out quite far way behind us. We're surrounded by farmland. Um, and I think in the Victorian times, this went underwent a lot of changes to become the pasture land that it is today, which is why it looks quite unassuming um, to our eyes. But of course, intercutting the field in front of us, we have three of our trenches from this year. So they are quite large, um, probably some of the largest that we've done so far. Um, and these are to target some of those garden features. So we have two sort of in the more central area Area, and then one right up almost abutting that ha-ha next to us. So you did start, it is five years you've been here on and off. Yes, I think it's, yeah. it has straddled the Covid period. Yes, yeah, so we've been it? coming since 2018 with a year off of the pandemic. Yeah. yeah, I think I did come here on the second year. Yeah. Yeah, actually, as you talk about the description of where we are, it, it would be good for me to remind you, dear listeners, that as ever, we have a show notes page. We've been taking some pictures while we're here. So if you hop on over to the show notes page and there'll be a link in the description associated with this podcast, you can see some of the things that we are talking about. OK, Ginny, you have been here for five years. I think that's right, isn't it? It is. Yeah. One year off the pandemic, but we've been here since 2018. OK. And... How many other Tudor, authentic Tudor gardens do we know about in the UK? Is this rare? So I think there are a few examples uh, throughout the UK um, in different sort of historical houses and palaces that we can see. Um, but what's really sort of interesting about Tudor gardens is there's not necessarily a lot of documentary evidence about them. Some sites I think are a lot luckier and they might have plans and written evidence. Um, but our sort of sources back then, our contemporary sources, aren't sort of how we'd imagine them today. So we don't have any aerial views from back then, of course, no planes, no bird's eye views. Yeah, of course. So it's always quite difficult to understand the layouts of these gardens. And of course, um, they were really, really interesting and really important places. So, you know, despite the fact that there are some gaps in our knowledge, it's something worth pursuing. These were sort of places for socialising, for meetings. These were things where really important stuff was happening. And in fact, if we look at the house behind us here, we can see how the whole house has been designed to incorporate and mm. show off this garden. Mm. It's a status symbol in itself for visitors. So yeah. we do have some gardens that are existing, some that we can sort of feed off, but this is really going to help sort of add to our understanding of those Tudor gardens. So when you arrived here in year one, how did you decide where to start? How do you how do you do that generally speaking for a project? <laughs> yeah so unfortunately I wasn't here in year one but I can absolutely say a huge help on this site has been our LIDAR imagery. Um, so I believe a few years before we came, there was some LIDAR work done, and that's essentially where we're using light to see uh, what's happening in terms of the topography in the ground. And it can cut through things like vegetation, so you get a really clear image. And from that LIDAR, it's, it's just so striking. You can really see the layout of the garden. Um, we'll make sure we get an image over to you for your viewers oh, as well. that would be amazing. So, you can have a look. so what did you see when you saw that LIDAR? Um, you can see things like pathways, walkways, central features, such as our 
large water feature behind us, which I'm sure we can we'll touch come on, on to in a, in a bit. Because <laughs> yes. that's where all the action's happening Absolutely, at the moment. Absolutely, yeah. yes. And other sort of features similar to that, other possible water features and things. Um, and it's quite clear that it's set out. It's in a very regimented, uh -huh. not so regimented as our formal garden that's been recreated today. But you can see that it's not natural. It's clearly man-made and it's made to impress as well. Okay. So you can use uh, LiDAR imagery and other things to decide where to place your trenches. And in fact, last year as well, we had some of our crowd funders do some geophysics just in the spot directly in front of us mm -hmm. of our two large trenches here um, to, in order to see below the ground again, to see what's going on there. And their work has actually directly informed where we place those two trenches this year. So we're trying to target things that we saw in yeah. those geophysics results. So maybe you could dissect kind of the highlights of the years that you found along the way. And, and as we go, perhaps we could explore how your understanding of the garden has changed. Yeah, absolutely. That's the great thing about archaeology, really. It's all about evolving and changing. So our ideas change as we go based on what yeah. evidence that we uncover. Yeah. Um, so initially, in our sort of first few years, we were hoping that we might have found evidence of uh, that banqueting structure that would have been erected for the visit of Elizabeth I. And I believe we found um, sort of a lot of animal bone and uh, other things that were sort of possible indicators of that. Yeah. Um, so we returned in our sort of next big year following the pandemic to look into that a little bit further and that's when we uncovered this Winchcombe stone so our narrative began to change and our sort of targets began to change with that um, and over the years uh, we've then extended beyond uh, our garden wall to chase that a little bit more we've been looking um, right past the trees down there you'll be able to spot it in the lidar and you can sort of see it in the topography today there's these huge lumps and bumps mm -hmm. and dips right at the end there yeah and so that was our target uh, last year, I believe. Um, we were looking for what could be a water feature or perhaps a wilderness garden. It's something that's been very heavily landscaped, something interesting that's mm. going on there. Um, so that was sort of our main target last year. And I believe we did find some sort of clay in there, which confirms us that it's probably a water feature. Clay is uh, for sort of waterproofing, it's to prevent it ah, draining yes. out. Right. Um, so that was really, really interesting. And then this year, of course, with it being our final year, we want to confirm more about this water feature behind us, which we initially uncovered in our earlier years. I remember that when yes. I came in year two, there was a lot of excitement. I think there was a, a sort of semi-circular dig going on and there yes. was an idea that there was kind of a mound and maybe that plays were performed on it and there was water around it. But I think there were lots of questions when I visited in, in, in that second year. Absolutely. And so this is what we're trying to tie up this year before we disappear. We want to get to the bottom of what is this water feature? What might it have looked like? And what kind of things might have been happening around here? You can see it's definitely our most dramatic feature still in the landscape. Um, for our viewers, who our listeners who can't see it, um, we've got this huge sort of mound that's sort of been cut in half by the ha-ha, which would originally have been a sort of viewing platform. Possibly. Oh, so it would have extended straight across. This whole ha-ha oh, yes. is a Victorian feature. It, it is, wouldn't have yeah. had this artificial divide. Absolutely, yeah. This okay. has been intercut by the Victorians. So this feature behind us would have even been sort of double in size. Oh, really? Um, right. And this mound is the perfect position to see up the garden. I think we're quite lucky that um, we're in sort of a lower area here. So the garden stretches out before us. It's a lovely sort of vista. But this mound would have been to sort of take advantage of that to 
really see those features uh, and the garden. Mm. And we believe that around the mound, you can see we have these dips sort of circling it here. Yes. There possibly would have been a water feature, some sort of channel there. Um, and uh, you'll see, we can have a wander over later, how deep the ditches are let's that we're excavating. Let's, yeah, let's go have, have a look. look. Let's go and have a peek. Because this is, as I said before, this is where all the action is. It is, yes. <laughs> Is it this weekend? Because we're on a Friday at the moment. So, so yes, we wrap up on Sunday and then we'll close up this Monday. So okay, not right. long left now. Yeah. So tell, tell, because, you know, to the untrained eye, there's some big ditches here. Yes. But maybe you could kind of pull out some of the detail. Yes, yeah, so you can see sort of around us, we're stood on that mound now, so you can see how it would have been a perfect viewing point. And around us, you can see that there are these three ditches that we've dug very deep in places. Um, and these are to sort of capture that channel that would have been running around the mound to see if uh, there's any sort of clay in there. As I mentioned, clay is really associated with water features and other finds that we might have coming out of there. And we've had some interesting things this year. Yeah. Um, we've had a lot of uh, Victorian fill which has okay. <laughs> provided us with some really interesting Victorian things. Not quite the era we're looking for, no. but fascinating nonetheless. <laughs> okay. uh, my favourite would probably be we have this lovely glass medicine bottle, and oh. it looks like there's still some lead in there. Oh, really? I would not recommend drinking no. lead, but um, not a great they idea. absolutely were all for that back in the day. Um, but most excitingly, in our deepest ditch in front of us here, where we can see Ren and Richard working, mm. Richard actually pulled out a, a clay pipe bowl the other day. And while it's quite an unassuming find, it is a really, really helpful one for us. Being at the bottom of that ditch and being such a datable artefact is really, really helpful. In archaeology, we always want to find sort of datable artefacts at the bottom of yeah, features. Maybe. Yeah. Because um, that helps us to understand when that feature was constructed. Mm. And so uh, we haven't looked too closely at the clay pipe yet, but uh, Steph, our site director, has had a quick look and believes that it could be from the 1600s. So Aww. this is a really good indicator that we're in the right area and we're seeing these Tudor garden features in front of us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if there was one find you'd love to find then in, in this 
what would be the clincher? I mean, personally, for me, I'd love to see some sort of Tudor jewellery or something. Some sort of Tudor remnant uh -huh. would be really Oh, wow, amazing. that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Um, it just um, dropped it in the water. I mean, oh, damn. It's Elizabeth the first necklace that <laughs> yes. fell off. Oh, my God. Um, be still my beating heart. <laughs> but in terms of sort of datable materials, things that we'd love to find are sort of coins and things, things that can really tell us about dates on here. Um, of course, we, we'd love to see these garden features as well. But yes, in terms of artifacts themselves, coins are really helpful, really dateable. That clay pipe was a really, really helpful one. Um, and yes, yeah, like I said, personally, I would just, I would love a bit of a Tudor tap. That would be amazing. <laughs> now, this, this deepest ditch in the middle, yes. how, how deep is that, do you think, at the moment? Well, it's so, at the top of lady's head that's in there. <laughs> I believe it's definitely over six foot. Um, six we have had some very tall people in there, uh, and even their heads are not quite poking out over the top. We do have our step, you can see, to help us get down there safely, because yes. um, I think at the moment it's probably standing around six foot five around there so my question is when you know how to stop good question um so in archaeology you tend to sort of dig to the natural or you tend to dig out the fill of a feature so in this case um, we're digging out these ditches so we want to take out the fill so that we can see the bottom of the ditch if you think about it almost like a, a bowl of porridge or something um, we're kind of scooping out the porridge from the inside so we can see the shape of the bowl uh -huh. underneath so you want to sort of trace that feature to understand the sort of the depth and the dimension of it um, but of course natural is a really good indicator so natural geology once you've hit that you know you've, you're you've there hit the end of the human race. okay yeah and that's what a trained eye knows yes. what to look out yes. for basically okay fine so as I've said a couple of times, all the actions going on around this trench and you've got these, you referred to these two, particularly two huge, broad, long trenches that are beyond that. But there doesn't seem to be much going on in there. So why is that? So um, garden archaeology by nature is very ephemeral. So it's not like um, other archaeological sites that we might be used to seeing that have these big features like walls and ditches, more like our trench sort of here in front of us. These other two trenches are targeting other garden features. So in our trench up here to the left, uh, we're seeing sort of a pathway in there, very ephemeral, not necessarily sort of full of gravel, but it's in there. Um, and then in our other trench here, I believe we saw evidence of sort of trees and planting and also a platform. Um, we we're trying to chase how much of that is natural, how much is landscaped, have they been sort of taking advantage of the, the landscape yeah. around them, yeah. um, which again would be a sort of another viewing point, another stop in the garden. This area that we're in here is a bit less formal than the sort of reconstructed gardens behind us. It's a little bit less sort of regimented, more sort of wilderness. Mm -hmm. uh, less. So it seems to blend in, it goes from the formal to the increasingly informal until it blends into nature. Is that, exactly. is that kind of how, how they were laid out? Yes, yeah, so we did believe, um, as I mentioned earlier, that we might have had sort of more of a wilderness area towards the end there. So absolutely, there's different sort of styles of garden yeah. going on here. This one, while it's still sort of man-made, it's still sort of formulated, it's a little bit less regimented in nature. So uh, yes, by nature, the features that we're seeing are a bit more ephemeral. Yeah. So the date of this garden, when do we think that this was constructed. Do we have any idea about that? Because you mentioned Thomas Seymour obviously building, um, using the material from the Abbey, so it was certainly here by the 1540s. Yeah, Any absolutely. earlier? What do we... 
Perhaps, yeah. So we can see behind us the uh, banqueting hall that Richard III constructed. And you can see that the construction of the building is definitely uh, intended to take advantage of a large garden. Yeah. Uh, huge windows to look out. And even this octagonal tower, mm. uh, which opens up onto the roof. There would have been a doorway onto the roof for them to look out as well. So definitely the castle, parts of it have been constructed to take advantage of this garden. So we mm. can assume it's been around for a fair while. Yeah. Um, definitely up until that slighting during the Civil War um, and one thing that we're trying to answer is when were these features constructed so hopefully with our, our clay pipe bowl we might have a few more answers on that. Wow. Excellent well, well I wish you luck with that. Um. Good so you're coming to the end as I said of this dig what what do you think what do you think your conclusions are going to be at the end of it? I think we definitely have a better picture of what this garden looked like. Um, before we came here, of course, we had our LiDAR imagery, but this is really answering some of those questions of what are those lumps and bumps? What are those shapes that we could see in those images? Um, and what we'd like to come away with is sort of a lovely uh, sort of bit of data information that we can pass on to the team at Seedley um, that they would be able to use to create a sort of reconstruction, an image perhaps of what the garden might have looked like. Yeah. Which can stand there for visitors to view for years to come. Oh, so that. perhaps some of our listeners might come and and see that reconstruction one day. I know for sure I'll be coming back. That would be amazing. Uh, it's that's always the icing on the cake when you is. see it brought to life. And it's like oh wow, oh, that's incredible. Yeah, and that's what archaeology is great for. Yeah, that's fantastic. So obviously the site's going to be covered up so people can't come and see it, although they can come and see the field and they can come and see the sort of the bumps and lumps. And you were talking about the fact really that at some point, hopefully, hopefully there'll be a reconstruction in terms of visual reconstruction that people can enjoy. Um, but, but what's next for Dig Ventures? Can, can our audience be looking forward to any more Tudor digs going on in the near future. Absolutely, yeah. So I'm not sure how much I can say at this stage, but our calendar will be coming out very soon and we do have another Tudor site in the works. So if you're interested in garden archaeology, similar sorts of stories tied to the great monarchs of the Tudor sort of dynasty, then absolutely we've got some more content coming for you. Oh, well, that sounds amazing. And of course, just to reiterate, your website is? Yes, so it's digventures.com. Uh, on there we've got our calendar page which shows all our upcoming digs and events but also you can join our mailing list and you'll get all the updates about what's coming up and when. That's great, that's wonderful. Well thank you so much, I'm so glad got to come back and see the end. It feels like a sense of completion, I'm sure you guys feel like that. Yes. And the sun is shining upon us as well so um, wow what a relief. Um, thank you so much for being our host today and explaining what's been going on over the last five years and sharing just what you found here. Well thank you for joining us. Thank you. Well, that's a big thank you to Ginny and the team at Dig Ventures and a massive congratulations for all the great work that they have been doing there. Um, there are some really interesting things coming up next year for Dig Ventures. So you might want to check out their website. Again, link is in the description just to see some of the venues that are coming up for future digs. And you might want to get involved. So yeah, definitely check out the Dig Ventures website. All right, now it's time to move on to location two. So let's hot foot it across a couple of counties and head to Northamptonshire and the sleepy village of Collie Weston, where there was once an amazing Tudor palace of gargantuan scale. Um, but 
As I said at the beginning of this episode, although the Palace of Collie Weston has been known about for a long time, its exact location, the nature of the buildings and their layout is not known. And this is the ongoing project that the Historical Society at Collie Weston have grappled with uh, for the last few years. And finally, they have had a major breakthrough. And as I mentioned, I was given the invitation to go up and meet with the president of the society, Chris Close, and find out just what had been uncovered. It's a very, very exciting time up at Collie Weston. And so, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I give you the Palace of Collie Weston an update with its president, Chris Close. Let's go. Hello, my friends. Well, welcome back to this new episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. And on this occasion, I am making a return trip, in fact, to Collie Weston in Northamptonshire. And for those of you who've been following the show for a long time, you will know that oh, back in 2018, 2019, I came to Collie Weston because there were some things afoot. Uh, there were investigations ongoing, or starting, I should say, to look for the lost palace, the lost Tudor palace, of course, once owned by the indomitable Margaret Beaufort. Now, I got wind that new discoveries had been made and I was kindly re-invited back uh, to explore all the latest findings. And to be our guide today is Chris Close. Hello, Chris. How are you, Sarah? I'm fine. It's lovely to be back. Thank you for inviting us. No problems at all. Oh, well, it's a bit of a chilly morning, isn't it? It is a bit sharp, yes. <laughs> it is a bit sharp. A chilly, grey November morning here in Collie Weston. But nevertheless, lots to look forward to, I'm sure, today. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've had um, an amazing period, really, since you last came to the village. Um, lots of new discoveries. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's, um, let's, let's take you through the village and uh, talk through some of the, uh, the developments. Absolutely. I mean, it's not every day that we find a lost Tudor palace. So this is big news in the Tudor world, and I'm excited to be able to share that. A hundred percent. Yes, it's, um, it's been something which um, we, we've, we've had an idea of this palace, um, you know, from from very young age, uh, we've all been brought up in this village. We've we've heard about it, but you know, really, when somebody says to you, "You've got a Tudor palace in your village," very difficult to interpret. What does that actually mean? Who lives there? How big was this palace? And these are really the answers um, that we've been seeking for the past sort of six to seven year project. So um, yeah, we've we, we've made some good progress with this now. And before we go one step further, mm. perhaps you should say what your role here is in Collie Weston and why you're our guide today. Sure. So uh, I'm the chairman of the Collie Weston Historical Society, which has been uh, leading the project to find the palace. So, uh, yes, that's my role. OK, lovely. Well, OK, now you're going to we're going to kind of do this in two parts i think we're going to go for a little bit of a walk around the village and you're going to point out some of the highlights to us and we'll talk about them on the way mm -hmm. and then you've got a little bit more detailed information that you may be able to share to us and we're going to retire to the pub a very english thing to do on very a sunday civil. very civilized indeed okay well we are currently we're not on the high street, but we are in the middle of Collie Weston at the moment, a lovely little village in Northamptonshire. And while we kind of make our way to the first point that you want to tell us about, perhaps you could just tell us about 
you know, what's been happening? Because I know you're in partnership with a, a, a number of people over this project now and a number of scholars have been inputting their research. Could, maybe you could just give us a little bit of background on that. Yes, absolutely. So um, obviously the project, um, we didn't actually realise how important Collie Western Palace was to the wider historical community and especially the Tudor um, community, community. So basically, um, over the last few years, we've, we've had visitors to the village, you know, such as uh, uh, Simon Thurley. Uh, John Gate has been helping us with the ground penetrating radar interpretations. Um, you know, obviously now we've got the University of York um, uh, ladies that are helping us with the project. And that's part of the wider Henry on tour, um, which is um, again being uh, uh, run through the Royal Palaces down at Hampton. So they've all visited the village in the last few months and um, yeah, we're in incredibly blessed really for the expertise um, to help us with this project. Yeah, I can understand that actually, because I mean, you guys are amazing. You've taken this project and you've just not let go. And I think that's from my small experience about something similar, trying to locate some panels associated with Anne of Cleves, were they, weren't they, were they, weren't they? And that's just a fragment of what you've been doing, but it's important to not let go. And I think what you've done is you've stayed in there and gradually you've been rewarded. And I'm so pleased for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's something which I think when we met, you know, several years ago, Sarah, I think um, the knowledge base that we had back then is like night and day compared to where we are today. So, you know, I think for any budding historians out there or anybody that's got something of interest in their local community that they wish to explore, um, my answer would be really just to go out there and have a go at this. It doesn't matter if you get it wrong. We've been more, more wrong on this project than what we've been right. But one thing that we've never done is stop um, trying to find new information and trying to get to the bottom of this with very limited resources, you know, mm -hmm. very limited cash. We've had no expertise in this project, no plans, no maps. It has literally been like trying to find a needle in a haystack. And, um, you know, this is testament really to the organising committee and the membership that have helped us get to where we are today. Yeah, well, bravo, bravo. And I, I, you did make me smile because you had an event last night, I know, where you were kind of launching this and you said that those original trenches were dug everywhere but where the palace was. Absolutely. It? Yes, yes. <laughs> it, and, and again, I think this is, this is it, again, a, just a direct reflection of, you know, I think, I think we've all been brought up on Time Team, um, you know, where everybody turns up on the Friday. Yes. Um, the Saturday, they've got a rough you know, found a load of uh, buildings and then by the Sunday, here's the artist's impression of what the site looked like. Yes. Now, I knew we were in difficulty at the start of this project when our archaeologist said to us, Chris, you do realise that the catering budget for Time Team is probably 10 times bigger than your actual budget. <laughs> so right. at that point, I thought, hmm, OK, <laughs> let's, let's, let's give this a go though yeah. anyway. And, um, and you know, I, th I think what happens is you have to evolve the learning process as you go along. So where we've missed bits of the palace um, with the archaeology, um, what we have had to do is we've had to start off with research. Research then has led us to investigate a particular area. That area then we will do field walking. These are all very low cost starts to a project. Then we might draft in a little bit of very basic geophys. That geophys may not be conclusive, but might give us a little bit of information more than what we previously knew. 
That then enables us to obtain grants to go for the more expensive ground-penetrating radar. And then it develops from there, archaeology, there's a stepping stone process to it. I see, how fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's really interesting. Okay, now we are walking down the hill and as we walk along, maybe you could just, for those people, I mentioned Margaret Beaufort, of course, Mm -hmm. you know, she is perhaps the most famous person associated with Collie Weston. Could you just give us a little bit of snippet of the history of maybe this house and how it, what, you know, what we know of how it came to be and its, and its ownership and why it became so important? Sure. Well, I mean, we've probably stripped this conversation right back to bare bones basics. So, we, you know, we've gone back into the Doomsday um, book just to kind of uh, take a look at what was previously here. Now, the first thing is that we... We, we notice is that you know we've got a very small settlement here uh, initially starting on back lane so with back lane we have um, records of the pub being in existence there so we've been able to see that the main emphasis of the village being on back lane and that's where the origins of the village start and that's kind of roughly where we are at the moment. we're on the high street right oh, now. we're on the high street okay fine we're right. on the high street right now so um this high street in terms of buildings you know we think this is collie western today it very much wasn't collie western Ah, back at the time of the palace interesting and that relates directly to the records that we have come through from the palace um, because it does mention about great gates and the wider village beyond so again this is hinting at where we're going to be finding the main entrance to this palace yeah. So if we go back to the, um, the origins of this site, I think, first of all, we know that this site had all the basic building blocks yeah. for, to sustain not only life, but also a very good life. Mm. Um, so we've got Ketton Stone here. We've got Collie Western Slate. We have massive forests at the time. Um, we have lots of food sources. So there was a 108-acre deer park here. Yeah. Um, fish ponds. Uh, so we, we, we've got basically all the basic things that somebody could want to establish a very nice palace here.
the, the origins of Lady Margaret's uh, palace, um, really, we have to go back into the medieval period. Uh, so what we've got is, in essence, a very plush medieval house mm -hmm. that was here. Yeah. Um, former owners, um, uh, we have uh, Heath and also we have Cromwell, Ralph Lord Cromwell, um, who um, also owned uh, Wingfield uh, Manor in Derbyshire mm -hmm. and also Tattershall in Lincolnshire. Mm. So very um, prominent at the time. We, we know we can see from the historic records that we started off with a gatehouse, a great hall, a great tower, and a chapel. Right. So that forms the basic building blocks of what then went on to become our Tudor Palace. I see, perfect. So we are coming down to the bottom of the high street at we the are. moment. Yes. And um, what is it that you want to show us? Sure, so in essence, we have the main palace site taken care of west of the high street. So it straddles across many different individual properties here. So um, we have an area um, to the north of here, which is um, what we locally call the, uh, the Palace Gardens. Um, and then through various different private properties uh, here through within Hall Yard. And then um, to the south, again, we can see um, where we, we started doing our digging mm. um, is where we've got the uh, terraced gardens. And, fish and that's where we first met. It is. Yes, in somebody's back garden. Absolutely right. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, how big, do we have any idea of how big the palace complex was that Margaret Beaufort went on to develop? Yeah, so um, the records show us that um, the, the entire complex was, was approximately 1,000 paces. Now, we've tried to look into how long is a pace, ah, because obviously yeah. today we've got metres, we've got yards that we're all familiar with. I've still not got a definitive how long is a pace, but um, it, we're using roughly a yard to about a pace. I see, right, okay, fine. And, and I think the other thing that's really interesting for people to know is, is, you know, why did Margaret come here? Why here of all places? And, and then what was so significant about the palace that she developed? Well, I think, first of all, Anybody that's familiar with Collie Weston will, will know the Welland Valley, and it's an area of really outstanding beauty um, in its own right. So the attractiveness just of the site lends itself to building something creative and building something really quite beautiful overlooking the valley. When you compound that with the fact that um, we've, the proximity between London and Lincoln, this is, an, again, just off the Great North Road. Major route in the time, major. Absolutely. So, you know, this was a very good stepping stone between Lincoln and, and London. Uh, then again, when we start looking at all the materials that we've got available that we'd, we'd spoken about previously, um, this, this, this yeah. lends itself to And her, wasn't she from the area as well? She had family roots in the area? Yeah, she knew the area very well. I mean, uh, so she had very strong links to Maxi um, over in Lincolnshire and um, Bourne, Lincolnshire. So uh, she would have undoubtedly known this area very, very well. Yeah. And, and, and am I also right in saying that, you know, that 
this was almost like her HQ <laughs> out of London. And, and she almost administered the area on behalf of her son, Henry VII. I mean, she was given so much power. Um, she would hear disputes here, she would sort out feuds, problems, all of that kind of thing? Absolutely, and the architecture almost reflects the importance that she puts in Collie Weston because, um, you know, we can see from the records that we have things like jewel towers. Yeah. Very rare to be getting jewel towers outside of London. Mm. Uh, so when we start looking at that and we start combining it with the fact that she, in essence, built a village of construction workers to build her lodgings very quickly ready for the progress of uh, Margaret up into Scotland I think that's again a direct reflection of how much importance she put on this site. I always find that one of the most romantic kind of poignant stories associated with Collie West and the arrival of Margaret here because her mother had died not long beforehand. She was going to leave her father and probably never see him again, never yeah. see the family again. I, it's very, I can feel it now just as I'm talking about it. So thank you for reminding us about that. But it was also visited by obviously Henry VII and, and also Henry VIII came here as Henry well. Henry VIII and Elizabeth I as well. So, you know, this uh, Collie Weston has had several Privy Councils run from this site over the years um, with uh, Lady Margaret and also Elizabeth I running Privy Councils from Collie Weston. So I, I don't think they would have picked an area to run a Privy Council if this wasn't somewhere special. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really interesting to put that in context and remind us all just how important this site was, particularly one of the most important sites outside of London hmm. um, in the period, really, I would say, or du during Lady Margaret's lifetime. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So we're here, kind of, we're on the sort of perimeter wall of, or near where the near where the perimeter would be of the palace. Yes. Yeah, so one of the difficult parts of unpicking the palace project has been to look at first of all the various different phases of construction that have gone on here within the village. So we're obviously looking at Collie Weston through a modern lens right now, but we have to almost deconstruct the village and go back to its origins. So when we unpick what's going on here at Collie Weston and in particular to the palace site, we have to be mindful that there's only in essence two main parties that have had checkbooks big enough to establish buildings and improve the site. So first of all, we've got the palace phase. So Lady Margaret and her predecessors, Cromwell and, and Heath, these people had huge swathes of money for their time and uh, they were responsible for building the initial um, uh, buildings on the site along then with the um, improvements to turn it into a palace. Then comes 1650 when the palace starts to run out of its useful function. We then start to, uh, uh, we, we can then start to look at the Tryon family. Now the Tryons were a family that uh, came to the UK from uh, from the Netherlands. Um, they were under uh, Spanish uh, Netherlands at the time and they escaped uh, persecution from, from the Netherlands. They came here and established homes throughout the Welland Valley, Collie Weston being one of them. And they bought this site, hugely wealthy merchants from the Netherlands and again they built quite a large property here. What we are looking at today primarily is the legacy of the Tryon period. 
Okay, right, because there are some fairly chunky walls on either side of the little lane that we're walking down, but this was not part of the original palace. No, it wasn't. But um, what we can see is when the Tryons took on this site, they clearly just started to use as much of the palace as they could. Yeah, recycling. Yes, absolutely. So <laughs> we can see various bits of the palace um, being rebuilt to create new walls. Uh-huh. And so all of this all of this stone that we're seeing here probably would have been what the material of the palace actually looked like. Um yeah, absolutely. So uh, interestingly enough, you know, I walked the village yesterday with Jonathan um and Jonathan Foyle and Jonathan was an absolute mind of knowledge on this. So where for example we're looking at a wall here, he would be pointing out that we've got in essence two different types of stone. Um, so again, this is, a, a, again, something that can reflect the building period and it's reflected in the colour of the stone. Yes, right, okay. So just here, we are now at what we call locally the Palace Gardens. Uh, so what the ground penetrating radar is picking up here is a very sharp 90 degree angle on this corner of what either is going to turn out to be a perimeter wall built inside the, the perimeter wall that we see today. I see, right. Or it may be a parallel wall as part of a range of building. Right. Can you remind us at its height, the kind of the constellation of buildings that made up the palace? You've mentioned some of them along the way, but maybe we could just pull them all together and give us an idea of what we would have seen if we'd have been visiting. Absolutely. So we know from the records, we can see that we have um, a great gatehouse. We can also see that attached to that gatehouse were things like council houses and prisons. Going from the gatehouse, uh, we would then be walking to what, what is, in essence, a middle gatehouse. So Collie Weston was, in essence, a three-courtyard three. building. Right, OK. So the middle gatehouse uh, then had... Um, links to Lady Margaret Beaufort's lodgings, uh, the Great Hall, Great Tower, and also... Do we think the Great Tower was a residential tower? It's difficult to tell at this stage. Um, we've got, we've had a, a really good look at the GPR. It almost looks Wingfield-esque in terms of its makeup, but smaller. Okay, so Wingfield is Wingfield Manor that you were talking about belonging to Ralph Lord Cromwell. Absolutely, yeah. And what, what's at Wingfield in terms of the tower? What was that used for? So Wingfield um, has got obviously kitchens and lodgings, you know, uh, is what it's been, been its primary use there. And then coming off the, uh, the main tower block has got this very large great hall. Hmm. Collie Weston, we're thinking very similar. Um, but we, we're probably a little bit early just until we've got the archaeology done. We're a little bit early to be able to commit on that. Yeah, OK, lovely. All right. So you mentioned a great gatehouse. Every palace, every great Tudor house had a wonderful gatehouse. And you've mentioned that, that there was a gatehouse. We know that for sure. Do you have any idea about roughly where that's situated? Yeah, so um, we, we, we've got ideas, but we've got conflicting ideas okay. on this. So um, we, we, in essence, have three potential entrances to this palace. So whilst we can see the main core of the, the building structures, the great towers, etc., etc., we can see all of those from the ground penetrating radar results. 
what we can't see is um, a really clear path. So the three conflicting ideas are the bottom of the high street as being a formal entrance. We have an entrance off the corner of Back Lane and New Road. We've then um, got a third potential entrance, which is coming off Pond Yard, and which is on the corner to Ketton Road and Back Lane. Okay, so, so you've got quite a lot to go for. I presume you're really going to be trying to find that gatehouse in, in what you do going forward then? Absolutely. I mean, the, the GPR is highly suggestive uh, of, of, one, of those three. We're going to test it this year. Okay, how exciting. Yes. <laughs> I bet you can't wait for summer to come around. I'm assuming when you say this year, you, you mean when you can dig again? In yes, the, in the, in the mean, next season. Really, we've got to get to spring because um, these are private people's gardens and we need to make sure that we're respecting their property. So getting grass to recover as quickly as possible yes. is something that we, uh, we need to be mindful of. Well, speaking of that, I mean, you must have a, a village full of very willing participants. I mean, the, the, the church last night where you have your event was, was packed to the rafters. You've got some great residents here allowing you to dig up their gardens. Are generally people very um, embracing of the history of Collie Western? So yes, we've got people that have come from far and wide um, all over the country taking a, a real interest in what we're doing here at Collie Weston. Yeah, it's marvellous. It's brilliant. So we're walking, continuing to walk down the hill. We're walking down the valley, aren't we, in essence, um, I guess. We're, we're walking down Back Lane uh, as we know it right now, and we're walking to one of the potential entrances um, located here off Pond Yard. So you mentioned evidence, the best evidence. Is it, is it the geophys evidence that is the best evidence or is it something in the documents that points towards this site being the site of the gatehouse? Well, it, it, it's a combination of things really. So first of all, we've got very strong ground penetrating radar um, uh, data that's, that's showing um, clear massive structures underneath uh, okay. the site. Right. Uh, we also can look at what has been previously dug from the site, so um, window tracery and the like has all been um, obtained from, from the location. And also um, there's been recent building works that um, were, had to be stopped because of um, walls that were found that lined up exactly with the ground penetrating radar. Oh wow, how exciting. So you've actually seen some in situ walls as well. We have, yes. Oh, that's brilliant. Now, I noticed that it's starting to, to rain out here. Do you think this is a good time for us to retreat to the pub or is there anything else we need to see out here before we start to get no, drenched? absolutely. I mean, I, I'll, I'll probably just show you this. So just, just briefly, just you while we're here. And then yeah, no, yeah. Um, as we walk up through the, the high street here, various buildings like the one that we see on the left, Although Lady Margaret wouldn't have seen these, these buildings did see the back end of the palace life. Oh, I see. So, so they were built, you said about 1650 was a, a, a date that you used earlier. Is that when the whole thing started really to fall apart? Yes, yeah, so what we, what we notice is that these palaces really went out of favour. I think um, there was a couple of pressures really on them. Number one was style. Yeah. and the fashion of the day. So Lady Margaret's uh, style and of architecture built in the early 1500s was, if we fast forward 150 years to the 1650s, this would look very much like, say, a building that we look at today from the 1950s or 1930s. Yeah. Very much a, a fashion statement. Yeah. They didn't think anything about removing palaces and recycling the material back then. 
There was lots of cost pressures back at the time. There was certainly a lot of uh, records detailing the amount of royal palaces that were going on, uh, that, were, that were still in existence at the time. And decisions were being made to cull the national number of palaces. Mm. Well, as the rain has started to come down, uh, we're going to retire now into the local pub, which is, as I said earlier, a very civilised thing to do on a Sunday lunchtime, and continue our conversation. Shall we go, Chris? Absolutely. Okay. Well, we've found some refuge inside in front of a lovely log burning fire, uh, taken up some seats here. So we are in a pub. So if you do hear some music and clinking glasses and people coming and going, that's because it's going to be business as usual for Sunday lunch, no doubt. But hopefully before it gets too busy, we'll have chance to conclude our story. Now, Chris, you have your laptop open in front of you. Uh, can you explain what it is you are showing me? Yes, absolutely. So we're looking now at the ground penetrating radar results that are marked in red. So you can see the wall-like structures are extensive across the whole of the, uh, the area west of the high street. Um, so first of all, um, I mentioned to you earlier that we, we in essence have three entrances that we've got to investigate. We're going to start with the pond yard entrance just being the one where most of our experts seem to feel that this is where the entrance is going to be coming it in through. It looks very entrance-like, I have to say. Yes. It, there's this long kind of uh, driveway that is just screaming at you, isn't it, with two, two clear structures like towers at the entrance to it that's just screaming at you. It Gatehouse. is. Gatehouse. I can see that. A hundred percent. Even my untrained eye can <laughs> see that. So, you know, what we've got coming off here, what we, we believe we may have, and, and again, this is all going to be subject to investigation. So um, we've, we've had a lot of surprises on this project, and it, and it really is, in essence, part of the learning process of doing a project like this. Um, so where, for example, we see here, we, ha we have records that show the almshouses at Collie Weston yes. um, and where they were linked and, and them being linked to kitchen gardens, etc. Well, we still have terminology today that still refers to the kitchen gardens. Ah, right. So Lovely oral tradition then. But you're showing me a part of the map here which has an open area, but adjacent to it clearly is a range of buildings that look like they are small, small little in, in, is that what's making you think that they're almshouses? Yes, absolutely. So what we've done is, um, again, part of our learning process has been to take other examples of buildings from the period, 
copy and paste them, and in essence place them directly onto this map. Does it look right? Does it feel right? Do the room dimensions look about right? And so the Arms Houses um, benchmarks that we've been using have been taken from uh, the Lord Burley Hospital down in Stamford, a very famous set of uh, Arms Houses up by the river. So we'll take something like that and place it. And, and what we can see is similar features, i.e. a common corridor and then a series of box rooms coming off it. Mm, right. So again, only archaeology will prove that one way or the other. But it looks very similar, doesn't it, when you look at that? Map? It's highly suggestive, yes, it's absolutely. Very suggestive. But while, while we're talking about almshouses, um, one of the things that we're, we've been keen to look into here at Collie Weston has been some of the stories associated with the people that actually lived here. Now, one thing we've, we've learned from the records has been Lady Margaret Beaufort, if we watch a typical documentary on modern-day depictions of, of Lady Margaret, she comes across as this very stern, almost dreaded mother-in-law type character. What we can actually see, though, from the records is that she was almost the polar opposite of that. So, for example, one of the stories that we've got here, the almshouses at Collie Weston had um, pumped running water to the arms folk. Now, they also had a common hall, and these were found typically in the kitchen yard. Um, so there's records that say that the poor folk, to ye number of 12, she daily and nightly kept in her house, giving them lodging, meat, drink, and clothing. So first of all, this is not a lady who is thinking about herself. She's clearly thinking about her wider community. And one of the things that really did sort of resonate with our society was Lady Margaret often engaged personally with the arms folk. And there is an extract here that says, her hands in giving arms unto the poor and needy and dressing them when they were sick, these merciful and liberal hands to endure the most painful cramps, so previously vexing her and compelling her to cry. And this is Lady Margaret looking after the arms folk. So... Okay, so I'm seeing that if this is the gatehouse, there's obviously a, a gatehouse leads usually into an outer courtyard, yes. usually, and then there's an inner gatehouse. One thing that's going to be, you know, again, that we, we are sort of learning here is that, you know, I think we've all been brought up on plans like Hampton. So where somebody comes in and says, I'll tell you what, let's have a lovely figure of eight palace just here. But Collie Weston hasn't happened like that. It's evolved. Yeah. So there's bits that look a bit awkward. Yeah, yeah. But we're going to have to be mindful of the fact that what Jonathan talked about last night with the convention yeah. is something that we're going to have to... Yeah, because, um, yeah, you will expect it to, by and large, correspond with that normal convention, but we maybe with the odd thing in slightly yeah. odd places. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, for example, things like this chapel... We've accumulated a huge amount of data. And when, for example, we'll get an extract that will say something like this, by the woods and near the orchard, yeah. there's a clearing where the Countess of Richmond once listened to outdoor concerts going on mm. in the now abandoned schoolroom. Mm. So we've been able to then find the orchard. Yeah. And we've been able to find from the records the woods. So we know somewhere between here there was a clearing.
and the, I mean, it looks to me literally that you have found all the key, or you believe you've found pretty much all the key rooms, chambers and spaces that you would hope to see. Well, what we're basically doing at the moment is we, we as a society, we try to run a hypothesis and then test it. So where, for example, we have put in things like long galleries and middle gate houses, this is just for our internal workings right now. And then over the course of the next 12 months, we're going to test these. Were we right with this? And I've no doubt that at some point, some of these rooms and the pins that we've put on this Google map will undoubtedly move. But um, as far as the main core structures are concerned, we're confident we've got this there or thereabouts. That's fantastic. And you've kindly said that we can use an image of this in the show notes that's going to uh, accompany this podcast. So do make sure, folks, that you check those out because you'll be able to see this sort of um, provisional <laughs> plan of the palace. And also, um, I think you noted, you noted or you were telling me just a little bit earlier that actually some of these walls have been uncovered. So in, in a way, there's been some archaeology, although be it almost by accident. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, certainly as part of uh, modern day living, um, we all put in plans for various different extensions and, and the like. Um, part of one of the homeowners' works has uncovered some of the walls that do relate directly to the ground penetrating radar results that we've had. Um, so yeah, we're just looking at them now on the screen. And um, as you can see, here, what we've what we've got a, a very very neat coarse rubble um, stone walls. So this has really been the first insight that we've actually seen of part of the authentic palace. And 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 some of the things that it tells us already are that you know we probably had question marks about what this palace looked like. Was it a timber structure? Was it um, a building that was ultimately with very fine dressed stone? What we can see here is that of the walls that have been uncovered so far, it's of a very coarse rubble style stone. So this coarse rubble style of building, um, we can see this in other examples that of buildings that are still stand today. So on St Andrew's Church in Collie Weston, we have a building called the Lady Chapel. This was built by Lady Margaret Beaufort. And we can see by, when we look at the main church, it's of a beautiful dressed stone, almost of a Gothic style building. But when we sit looking at this building here, we can see it's of this coarse rubble made up of, uh, in essence, two to three inch high um, pieces of stone, very long sections that are built um, in, probably lime washed has been suggested to us. And we can see actually from the from the photos here that we have things like plaster have been um, have been uncovered on the on the walls as well. And can you tell from the thickness of the walls how high the building was? Has anybody suggested that? I think until we start uncovering other parts of the structure, my theory is that we will be working on a thinner gauge of wall for maybe some smaller, lower set internal walls and then some of uh, the thicker walls will probably be suggestive of some of the taller exterior walls. Okay, so still more, much, much more information to come. Absolutely. So what are your plans for the coming year and beyond? How long is this project projected to go on for now? 
Well, ultimately, it will go on for as long as it needs to go on for. We haven't really set a, um, uh, you know, a definitive timetable in that respect. Um, our plans for this next 12 months really are to get as much archaeology done as possible. Um, we are thankful again of the help that the uh, University of York people have brought to this party. Um, they're going to help us hopefully with some recreations of the palace in terms of 3D models and the like. And then we look forward to um, really the legacy of the palace project is going to be to have a full-time exhibition and which is going to be found within the church. Um, we have a temporary one at the moment, but we just want to formalise this and make it uh, more professional. Wow. And a 3D reconstruction would be awesome. Yes, I mean, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, whilst we as historians are very focused on trying to find this palace and walls and the like, we're also mindful of the fact that, you know, obviously people lived at this palace. We're, we're as much interested in the the stories that come from the palace and the, of the people that lived there and also um, its legacy. Yeah, absolutely. Just well, wow, what a story. And I I feel this is, I think I was saying this to you last night, it's almost almost just the beginning. It's at the beginning of a new chapter, isn't it? It's a, I feel that it's about to yield so much more. Uh, it must be very exciting for you. It is very exciting and, and it's been you know, immensely rewarding as well, you know, just um, I bet personally as, as well as, you know, for a community. Yeah, well, thank you again to the Collie Western Historical Society. You've done a sterling job. And thank you, Chris, for being our host and guide and updating us. I hope I'll get an invitation to come back maybe in a couple of two or three years' time to hear about what more you find out here at Collie Western. Thanks for coming, Sarah. Thank you. Well, my friends, I hope you will agree that that is some very exciting news coming from the Collie Western Historical and Preservation Society. And it's a big thank you to Chris Close, president of the Society, for being our expert guide today and updating us with all the latest. And I just wanted to say a massive congratulations to bring the project this far from nothing is no mean feat. So I Take my hat off to you, my friends up there in Collie Weston. Keep going. We can't wait to hear what happens next. And I certainly will be returning next year to bring you the very latest news from the archaeological digs. Stay tuned. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this bumper episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. Thank you so much for your company. I hope you enjoyed our locations today and our chats with our expert guide. It is once again a very Merry Christmas from all of us, the team here at the Tudor Travel Guide. And I look forward to returning in January with another year ahead of us for new adventures in time. I'll see you on the road again soon. for tuning in to today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've loved the show, please take a moment to subscribe, like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, all that remains for me to say is 
Happy time traveling! <laughs>